We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm happy to be joined by documentarian Matt Whitworth and Tom Garrett, who you may remember from his days in the U.S. Congress. Welcome to both of you. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks so much, Emily. Now, Tom, you told me to introduce you as anything uh, but a congressman, a former congressman. You didn't like it when you were a congressman. Um, Some folks may remember the the circumstances of your departure from Congress. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about how you're doing and and what you've been up to? So, yeah, um, (laughs) I I sort of had to make a decision about what was important in my life. And the most important thing in my life at that point was my life. I I had uh, 20 some odd years of of self-medicating with alcohol. Um, I think two to four nights a week, probably not buzzed, um, mm-hmm. a step above. Um, and, and so, uh, I think May 23rd of 18 was the last time I took a drink, May 27th. Uh, I'd been accused of ethics violations, which I was subsequently cleared of, but they didn't accuse me of being an, an alcoholic, which I was. So I stood in front of a statue of Barbara Rose Johns, who I think is an amazing American who more people should know about. And said, uh, "I'm not. I didn't do any of the stuff they said I did, but I am an alcoholic, and as such, I'm not seeking re-election. Sort of made a promise to myself that if I had so much as another drink, I'd resign. I didn't. Um, it's so fascinating. You can talk about God. Like, uh, you know, I've always believed in God. I just believed in me more. I was that smug guy who said, well, God's not going to cut my lawn, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I got down on my knees, and I said, God, help me with this. That, that I can't help myself. And uh, it, it's been easy, relatively speaking. I've had, I've, I've never had a hard year, I had a hard month. I've had some hard hours and hard days, but, 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 but just turning to God and giving it to God. And so then it became uh, sort of find myself. What, why am I here, right? And the reason I'd gotten into politics was because we used to have Sunday dinners together in my family at the at the dining room table. Mom wanted to make sure I knew the salad fork, you know. And um, my father had sort of drilled the parable of the talents into my head that like I have a responsibility to try to make the world at least some fraction better by virtue of having been in it. Mm. And so politics was my avenue for that. I, I got to Washington. I couldn't stand it. We could do a whole other segment on that. If you would ever have me back, I'd be delighted. Uh, some other people wouldn't. Um, <laughs> All the better. But uh, but, I, but what did happen was um, kind of got cubbyholed on the Foreign Affairs Committee. I think they thought I couldn't do any damage and ended up having the opportunity to go into Sudan against the wishes of everyone, mm. and from the White House to the committee chairmanship, et cetera, paid my own way. The Trump to, White House? Uh, yes. Um, and that's not to bash President Trump, but like, sure. so one of my problems uh, or, or blessings is that when I decide that something's the right thing to do, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I think if you are elected to office and you're more concerned with getting reelected than you are with doing the right thing, you shouldn't be elected. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the opportunity was presented. A gentleman named Petr Yashik, a missionary with Voice of Martyrs, had been arrested in Sudan for, for aiding rebels, air quotes implied to you listeners. Um, and what he was Which doing basically was, means giving food to... People. Right. Food and medicine to displace people was aiding rebels. And he was serving like a 24 year sentence. And there were like 60 members of the House and Senate who were helping him. The Czech government, the U.S. State Department, they get him out and, and he's and he's back in Prague. And I called him. I was the last. I was like the least helpful person. I signed on at the very end. And I said, how are you? He said, I'm fine. But my colleagues aren't. And I said, who are your colleagues? He goes, well, the local nationals who helped me in Sudan are still in prison. And I'm like, oh, dude. So I got in my car and drove over to the fake, because there's not a real Sudanese embassy because they're a state sponsor of terror, knocked on the door and said, you need to release these two men. And they said, who are you? I gave them a business card. They said they had had a member of Congress there in over a decade. Mm. And they said, will you come to Sudan? I said, will you release these men and their families? Uh, Again, everybody said, you can't go. I went anyway. 
uh, got got to Dallas like four or five months later and met these two these two African men who had never heard of me or seen me, at, you know, who are free. I had seven family members living in Buckingham County, Virginia, worked with the church to get them a home. And I thought, holy crap, God's doing something with me that matters. Mm. So, like, I'm finding this fire that I didn't have in Congress, even though it was in Congress. I'm still getting drunk two to four nights a week, and, I, and, 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 and I'm happy with me. And then uh, when I announced that I had a problem with alcohol and I was going to address that, um, there was a, a group that was trying to get people to go into Syria to meet with the Kurds and the Christian militia in North and Eastern Syria that were fighting ISIS and Darzor and Baguz. And they said, will you go? I said, me? I'm not running again. I'm like the least important member of Congress. They said, nobody else will go. Will you go? And once again, I said, yeah, I'll go. And, and, and then the administration, literally, there was a special forces team that found us and said, you need to leave now. It's dangerous. I said, ah, really? Mm-hmm. I kind of knew that when I got here, but somebody has to tell these people stories. And, and, I'm, and, and so I'm standing on over this, the whole story here. Wait, one question interview. Yeah, yes, <laughs> I'm standing on a rooftop in Amuda, Syria on Thanksgiving night of 2018, sober for four or five months, however long it is from May 24th to Thanksgiving, with the guy named Dave Eubank who founded and runs the Free Burma Rangers. And I said, Dave, man, is it selfish? Is it, is it, is it wrong? Like, I love this, but I got three kids. I could die. Mm-hmm. And he said, Tom, everybody's going to die. The question God wants to know the answer to is how are you going to live? Mm-hmm. And I went, wow. So I'm thinking this is where I'm supposed to be. God is, because that's my prayer every day. Dear Lord, put me where you want me, amen. Because I don't know anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I'm a pretty smart guy. I know nothing. God knows all. And, um, and so, so that's it. So how am I going to make a living doing this? And I'm, you know, people that used to call me don't answer my calls, and everything's gone to heck. And then Matt Whitworth comes to me, so... Well, and you may be familiar with Matt's work from the excellent documentary series that he did, which started on Facebook and ended up on HBO called The Swamp. Fantastic. We wrote about it here at the Federal Set at the time. Can't speak highly enough about that. They're working together. Now, Matt and Tom are working together on a new series called Exile. I've only seen the trailer, but it is incredibly compelling. So, Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about how it is that you came to collaborate with Tom on this new series? Yeah, so Tom was one of the original cast members on The Swamp when it was a Facebook watch series. By the time HBO came around and greenlit it as a feature-length documentary, uh, Tom had left Congress. Um, But we had really developed a a friendship. I liked Tom right away when we first met. Actually, when I went into his office the first time to try to pitch him to do The Swamp, he had a notepad and a pen, and he's like, I want your first and last name because I'm going to Google you to make sure you don't (laughs) screw me. And uh, I was like, all right, I like this guy, straight shooter. And so uh, Tom and I became friends, and it was really clear quickly his, the passion that he had for helping religious and ethnic um, minorities in countries around the world. And I thought it was fascinating being a member of Congress, going over to the Sudanese embassy and working behind the scenes uh, to get these Christians released and really not even uh, looking for media coverage. I, I didn't do any press because I felt like you got to do the right thing for the right reason, right? Yeah. And, I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm going to give you the mic back in a second, Matt. It's not about helping religious minorities. Not, it's about helping people, mm. right, as a Christian. And I'm not here to evangelize. I'm supposed to help people, period. Mm. And Congress is full of people who tweet about and do media interviews. Right. You know, I want to help. I want to make a difference. And they don't actually do anything. Right. Um, And so and I am a, you know, political news junkie, um, love politics, love news, love world news. I didn't even realize until I started talking to Tom the severity of this crisis of religious persecution, just how widespread it is around the world, that it's institutionalized in Mm -hmm. so many countries around the world. It's 80 percent of the world now 
living under some form of religious persecution. It's up from like 70% a decade ago. Um, and one of the, the sad realities of the pandemic is it's gotten worse over the past 18, 24 months. Really? Murders of Christians are up 60% in one year. Why is that? And that's that? what we know about. Well, here, handoff, right? Wonder Twin Powers activate. Um, <laughs> but, but, because because roaches play in the dark, right? The, the media, uh, the world uh, eye has been taken from uh, humanitarian issues and causes. Uh, bad actors know that now's the time uh, because we're distracted. And, and so we've taken our eye off the proverbial ball, and it's definitively gotten worse. And the other thing is that the news cycle is the news cycle, right? We met with young people and well, we met with old people and all kinds of people in, in, in um, refugee camps in Syria and Iraq who've been there eight years. Mm-hmm. They're there. We're talking. You're listening to this. They're there. And the world's forgotten. So what happens? Yeah, these are children. I mean, so uh, Tom and I started talking about this. I knew he went to Sudan. I knew he went to Iraq and Syria. And so we started talking about, okay, what could a documentary series look like? Well, And then the sad reality is there's no shortage of countries that we can go to. Right? Mm. This is happening all over the world. And so we were sort of talking. And then in June of 2019, Tom calls me and he goes, hey, can you go to Iraq? next week and can we get a film crew there Mm. and i'm like yeah no that doesn't sound like a great idea like i don't know if i want to go over there and he's like look trust me you're you know it's it's gonna change your worldview on a lot of this and so we i was like look i believe in tom uh you know despite a lot of people sort of casting you aside with how you left congress yeah and so i was like all right i will take the risk personally to put up the money that we need to get our film crew over to Iraq and Syria. And and let's see, you know, can you host a show like this? Um, And so we booked our tickets to Iraq eight days before we left. How does that work even logistically with getting that greenlit pass? So there's a difference between Iraqi Kurdistan and central Iraq, which is Baghdad. And so as an American, you have to try to get a visa to go to Baghdad. As an American citizen with a U.S. passport, you can fly to northern Iraq, to Iraqi Kurdistan right now without any having, without having a visa. Um, you and can't I'm blessed. Use- Again, I talked about David Eubank and the Free Burma Rangers, right? They've got a presence in Iraq and Syria that dates back to the conflict uh, where they liberated Mosul, the second largest city in Iraq, biblically Nineveh, mm-hmm. um, from uh, ISIS. So they had resources and people on the ground that could help us. I've been in and out of Syria a couple times, and it's always been. Uh, with with guys who were some way, and I can't, I just can't not give credit to them. Yeah. yeah. And I'll tell you this, digressing for a moment. I would love to take people to, say, Matthew's Monastery outside Mosul or to Al-Kosh, Catholic Church in northern Iraq, and these places where the prophet Nahum from the Old Testament is buried in, 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 by, by Al-Kosh. And you can go touch the tomb. I mean, and it's just crazy. And But people are afraid because it says, oh, Iraq. But, well, we're losing all this. Like when ISIS came in and took places, they didn't, they destroyed the antiquities. These are places in, in Al-Kash that 16 Catholics led by a priest um, with AK-47s held from Daesh ISIS for th- three years. Uh, so it, you go there and meet those people and you're like, oh. It's a, Tom just alluded to like two really important parts of the series and what we want to do. One is just highlighting these incredible groups that are on the ground working to make the situation better. Um, and then the other aspect of it is this is going to change people's perspective of what it looks like in these countries. I mean, I've spent a lot of time now in northern Iraq, and they're amongst the nicest people I've ever met anywhere before in my life. 
um, and they love Americans and they are, you know, pro pro Western. Um, and they just, you know, they have the same desires, hopes, fears as people living in the West, right? They want their kids to be safe. They want to be able to practice their faith uh, safely. They want to return to their home cities that have been ravaged by the Islamic State. And now they're living in these, you know, makeshift uh, refugee camps. And you're talking to children who are six, seven years old, who that is the only home that they've ever known, right? Mm -hmm. They had great families. They had homes in, in some of these cities. And because of religious persecution, um, they're now living in these camps. So mostly Christians and no, well, so oh, it's no, funny. It's, you I mean, got if if your dad's a police officer, you're in the camp, right? When Dash came in, they would look at who the authority figures were and they'd kill their families. So you got Sunni and Shia alongside Christian and Yazidi mm -hmm. because somebody was a teacher or somebody was a police officer, what have you. Um, but the funny thing is that the, the Christian population in Iraq and Syria went, has gone from 4 million to like 400,000 in 15 years. Wow. Like that's, that's, if that's not genocide, decimated. if it's a well, decimated means 10%, right? I mean, it's been, if that's not genocide, it's definitively ethnic cleansing. It hasn't made the news, right? But the Kurds as a, as a, as an ethnically oppressed minority in Iran and Turkey and Syria and in Iraq had sort of get it right. So you've lost Christian population everywhere in the region, except Erbil the capital of Iraqi Kurdistan, where in the Ankawa neighborhood on the north side of the city, you've actually got a growing Christian population. Yeah, you know, by the way, you mm. don't get stoned to death if you convert, mm. which is a novelty. Um, but again, I mean, you got to see it. So our foreign policy, I'm going to get down another road here, but this is kind of why I'm risking my life or willing to risk my life to, do, to tell this story, is, is broken because we've always gone with uh, the, stri the strategic interest, period, and st full stop. And I get it, right? The easiest example is that during the Cold War, we wanted Turkey to be a member of NATO because we had to control the Bosphorus so that the Soviet Black Sea Fleet couldn't make it to the Mediterranean, right? right? So we said, hey, Turkey, we want you to be on our team. And Turkey said, cool. And by the way, we're going we're gonna to completely, we're going to write a law that's, and I'm not kidding, that says there's no such thing as a Kurd. Mm -hmm. And they did. And the U.S. turned a blind eye. Uh, and and that's and we've done that a million times with the Hmong and the Montagnard, and most recently in Afghanistan. Like the strategic interest outweighs the human interest. No, we do it in Saudi Arabia. Uh, oh my gosh! Right. Bajibazi. I mean, uh, so so here's my here's my oversimplification, which I don't think is. It's a bipolar world. Tragically, that we had about 10, 15 years where it was a unipolar world. The U.S. was it. It's now us and China, and so foreign players have to do business with one or the other, and oftentimes both. But we need to say, we're not doing business with you if you oppress your minority populations, your racial minorities, your ethnic minorities, your religious minorities, your sexual minorities. Now, I know who I'm speaking to. I don't care. Yeah. We care about human beings. Mm -hmm. So if you oppress your minorities, if you stone to death people for, for, for their faith, we aren't doing business with you. Now, well, they'll go do business with China. I don't think so. They'll do a cost-benefit analysis and say, whose team do we want to be on? Because anytime you get in bed with China, you're selling your soul. And people are starting to figure that out. And then they're going to start to behave differently. And by the way, as a you know, former member of the House Freedom Caucus, this transcends political affiliation or ideology. If you can't agree with me that people have a right to live without fear in the place of, of their birth, then I can't, I, we can't even have a discussion. Um, but I think we could get you know, AOC and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene in the same room and have them agree with the idea that you shouldn't kill people because they worship different than you. Right. Right. So if America said this is who we are and this is how we're going to behave and meant it. And we hold the moral high ground in the world, which we don't hold now post Afghanistan. 
So this docuseries shows the world the tragedy that they're not seeing and it calls for us to do business differently. And so what really gets me fired up, can you tell, <laughs> is, is that we have the ability to save unnamed, unnumbered lives and improve quality of life all over the world by saying, this is where we draw the line. We won't put money ahead of life. And uh, I think we can do it. So uh, there's another story, but go, I'm sorry. No, I was just saying, I mean, the, <laughs> the great thing about filming with Tom as a filmmaker is that like an eight hour film day, you're gonna get 90 hours worth of material <laughs> somehow, which makes the edit process really, really easy. Um, no, but look, I, I mean, personally, I made a big risk, right? Like wrote a big check because I believed in Tom and I believed in the subject. Yeah. I was going to ask about that because, you know, talking about bringing a camera crew to Northern Iraq on eight days notice, it sounds logistically like a nightmare, but of course it also sounds very expensive. It has to be expensive. Yeah. Anytime you're filming abroad, especially, uh, you know, a subject matter like this, it's, it's incredibly expensive. If we, if we were trying to do this series with HBO, Netflix, Amazon, it'd be over a million dollars an episode. So. So we have these connections on the ground, a large part due to Tom's service on the Foreign Affairs Committee, um, where we have spent the last year working all of these connections, fixers, trying to figure out how we can do this series and make it cost effective, mm -hmm. right? Knowing that it's not a series that we could take to Hollywood. First of all, right. they're going to say, "Can you know, is Tom Garrett capable of, of hosting this series, right? Yeah. I think the trailer... Um, shows that he is. Well, I was um, just going to say, from the trailer, it's indistinguishable in quality from something that HBO, Netflix it, would put out. You, I, wouldn't, you wouldn't know. Yeah, I think uh, uh, Tom is, and again, I've always sort of viewed him as this Anthony Bourdain-style mm. character. Mm. I think the show is going to be, um, you know, even for a digital series, as successful as that. I think people are going to want to watch it. The other thing is, too, um, and I don't want people to be persuaded, like the subject matter, like, hey, are you just going to show us all of this bad stuff happening in the world? We know, you know, this is this is going on. Some of the stories, and you don't understand the the depth of it until you're filming it. We were sleeping on this at this military installation on the Syrian border, like concrete floors for a number of days, embedded with the Peshmerga special forces, mm -hmm. and these female soldiers were coming in off the front lines. And they're taking off their body armor and their helmet and they're putting their rifles down. And this is essentially like a shack, right? Just dirt pushed up against the border and all of these troops safeguarding it, making sure that there's not going to be a surprise attack. And so we set up in this concrete block building and we're doing some interviews with these female soldiers, talking to them about fighting the Islamic State, being in the trenches, what that was like, dealing with suicide bombers having ISIS surrender to them because in their warped ideology, they thought that if they were killed by a woman, they automatically went to hell. Mm. So they would fight women more ferociously than they would fight men. Mm. And so they're sharing all of these stories. And I'm like, by the way, how, how old are you? Oh, I'm 20. I'm 21 years old. And, and, and just, just blown away young women who are like, you know, well, I watched them behead my father. Or, or who were like, well, we, we spoke with that young lady who had been free for like 45 days from, from slavery, from sex slavery, right? She says, I was, and I think she's hyperbolic, I hope, I was sold a thousand times. These are human beings, mm. right? So, and the thing that, you know, look, I don't know how this plays out, right? We're trying to crowdfund this thing, so, um, but this stuff matters. So I want to get into a story that you've heard 26 times, Matt. I'm on the Ed and Workforce Committee and 
and I was so frustrated in Congress. There's like 45, 50 people on a committee, and there's four or five in a room, and they stay long enough to say their piece and leave, and then they send a video of themselves talking to their constituents and say, look what I did, and they didn't do crap. And you served in the Army, right? Yeah, I was in the military. I wasn't like some super bad cool dude or whatever. I was a fire support guy. Um, although all the super bad cool dudes are the ones that tell you they want. Yeah. No, I wasn't. Um, <laughs> but um, but I'm on and workforce, and, 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 and Mike Rowe comes in from Dirty Jobs. Yep. Right. So instead of five or six members of Congress in there, the whole room's full. Every seat's full. And Mike Rowe starts his comments by saying, hey, look, I'm not a subject matter expert. I just have strong feelings. And But everybody's taking notes. And there, Aristotle repeatedly said, if you give me the storytellers, I'll give you the future. Mm-hmm. Right. If I want to if I want to win hearts and minds, I know that phrase is weighted. Uh, I can't do it from a speech to the Foreign Affairs Committee. This is how you do it. And these we should, we, you know, to whom much is given, from whom much is expected. And so for me to take a risk when guys like David Eubank have been taking risks for 25 years to save lives, Dave Eubank gets shot in the Battle of Mosul and is helping people on the battlefield the same day. Mm. My friend Muhammad, who, who converted to Christianity and was essentially disowned by the people who loved him, who's been shot six times, mm. and they just keep going back. Mm. So, so, so Tom won't do it because he's afraid? So, so yeah, like it's, it's, we're coming up on Christmas. You, you know, what's a little bit to us is a lot to, to those people. What can we do? There was a report that the UK commissioned and that came out in 2019 that found that Christian persecution is approaching genocide levels. In the Middle East particularly or Nigeria around, is the, around the world. Yeah. Africa is, is the main culprit. Um, most of the murders of Christians take place in Africa. Um, and so, and, and that was the point what we were talking about earlier. You asked about Christian persecution in Iraq at the hands of the Islamic State. Right. The people who suffered most under the Islamic State were Muslims. Right. Who were not sufficiently Muslim. Um, and so I think that, you know, and we're not even, you know, people keep asking, where are you filming? You know, what episodes are you doing? We can't even, for security reasons, say all of the places that we're filming. I was going to ask. Second time we were in Syria, we would go somewhere and two hours later, something would blow up. And yeah. then we'd go somewhere else and then two hours later, something would blow up. Right. And there's a quote in the trailer where Tom um, refers to an email in which he's referred to as a known high value target. Can you tell us a little bit more so about that? was the email, by the way, on the, hey, eight days we're going to Iraq. Right. Um, we get an email from the Kurdish government in northern Iraq saying, by the way, Tom, um, what did they describe it as a A plus target? No, it's a high value target. Right? High value. My target. response was, "I'm flattered." Right? Yeah, that's a nice compliment. Uh, and was, I was like, "Great, let's." You so know. they're flagging it for you. They're saying, "Yeah, but I mean, truly, like, right. I mean, so back to my dad. Uh, you know, it's not so important who you are; it's who you're trying to be. And 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 you know, I mean, we've been this country, America, is exceptional. It's special, right? I'm not special. You're not special, but we are. Um, was built by people who are willing to take a risk to do the right thing, mm. right? That's why I love Barbara John. She's a teenage African-American student in segregated South who stands up on a stage and says, if all men are created equal, how come there's a separate school, Yeah, right? That case gets amalgamated in Brown versus Board of Education. Her parents told her not to. The clergy told her not to. Everybody told her not to. She's 15. She's brave. <laughs> so I'm, I'm 49. I've served in the military. I've done lots of neat stuff. I can't be afraid to do the right thing. I can't, or can be. That's bad. my job. My job. My, my <laughs> job is to, to be afraid. afraid. <laughs> yeah. So seriously, you know, days before we're going to Iraq, and like I'm, 
you know, talking to my family that I'm going there, they're freaking out. So we're not even saying Iraq in text messages. We're describing it as Ireland and we're describing Syria as Sweden because I don't know who's listening. And um, TSA Customs loves me every time I fly back from Iraq. When you walk around northern Iraq as an American, everyone assumes you're CIA. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's been a remarkable experience. But the the caliber of people that we've met and the the stories that they've had, the suffering that they've experienced. One of the, I'll tell you this, you were doing an interview and you said, you asked a subject, and this is a woman who runs a camp for women who were sex slaves under the Islamic State. Mm-hmm. And we asked, you asked one of the, the girls, um, you know, what are your hopes for the future? Mm-hmm. And she said, that's such a Western question. Yeah. Like, we don't, what do you mean? Like, we're just trying to survive. Um, And so that is just something that's happening. It's happening in Africa to Christians. It's happening in India. The government there is discriminating against Christians and Muslims. There was flooding in in southern India, and Muslim families didn't get money. Christian families didn't get money. The only people who got money? Yeah, the Hindu families, right? Were the Hindu families. That's like them thinking, okay, well, God's just helped us displace these undesirables anyway. You have a shock. Meanwhile, you got uh, muhajirs who are Muslims who moved from India when when the British carved off Pakistan to create a Muslim state who are being discriminated against by the Muslim government of Pakistan because they aren't from there. I mean, we could do this all day. Yeah. Uh, Or don't get access to government jobs like police or military, et cetera, because their father came over in 48 from the wrong side of a line. Right. And and, and it's just I think we this country, America, this great country has work to do. But we are so lucky. Mm-hmm. This sort of to me, I want to show my twenty-two-year-old, my twenty-year-old, like, dude, yeah, America's not perfect, but gosh, you are so lucky. Now, what can you do? What can you do to give a little bit of what you have? Right? We talk about privilege. I don't think that any privilege, and I was privileged to have Tom and Lois Garrett as my parents. Mm-hmm. I was privileged to grow up in rural Virginia and go to Louisiana County High School. Um, but any privilege where you force someone to relinquish because of it is phony and only begets retribution down the road. Instead, recognize that you're blessed and then ask yourself, what can I do? Mm-hmm. Uh, to, again, to whom much is given from whom much is yeah, expected. W- when you hear some of these stories, it makes any problems that we have in this country, race relations, anything like seem so incredibly trivial. Um, but so that's the goal. Like we want to film in Africa. We're going to film in Asia. We're going to film in Europe, right? There's been the shocking rise of anti-Semitic attacks um, in, in Europe. We're going to film in North and South America because there's, there's, you know, there's problems. So if you're old enough, you'll remember how back in the early 2000s, Blackberries just revolutionized the way we communicate. But it wasn't long before Steve Jobs and Apple, of course, thought they could outperform them with a phone of their own. In an all new season of Business Wars, you'll hear about how Blackberries and iPhones battled for their shares of the emerging mobile phone market. It seems standard now, but Blackberry's ability to allow users to text and send emails was a major game changer at the time. They really were the first mobile devices that could sync work emails to a phone. So for the first time, people weren't chained to their desks. So as the gold standard, every power player from D.C. to New York City to L.A. had a BlackBerry. 
But just when they thought they had the market cornered in 2007, Apple came in and launched the iPhone. On Business Wars, iPhone versus BlackBerry, you'll hear how BlackBerry, the phone favored by presidents, Wall Street, and top government officials, spurred Apple to push the envelope by developing technology that would usher in the future of phones, putting the power of smartphones in the pockets of billions worldwide. This is a fascinating story. There's so much relevance to today when we look back and see how this battle developed. I can't recommend it enough. Listen to the Business Wars iPhone versus BlackBerry podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. We're happy to be sponsored today by the Novus Society at Donors Trust, a program for aspiring philanthropists that can help you get started as a young giver and connect you to like-minded peers. So with the holidays around the corner, you are likely starting to reflect on all you've achieved this year and even maybe those things that slipped through the cracks. As you begin this period of reflection, consider taking another look at what you're doing with your charitable giving. Do you normally wait until the end of the year and frantically punch in credit card numbers before the ball drops? Maybe you missed your year-end giving entirely. That is until New Year's resolutions are all anyone is talking about and you vow that this year you will make time for giving. If that sounds like you, you should talk to the folks at the Novus Society at Donors Trust. Novus Society is a program for young philanthropists under 40 to dip their feet into strategic charitable giving so their gifts can make a larger impact all while making things easier and simpler. With Novus Society, you get a team of trusted philanthropic advisors to help you learn how to develop your giving goals and strategy for long-term success. A community of peers who share your principles, as well as access to the fastest growing giving tool on the market, a donor-advised fund. Donor-advised funds can help you simplify your giving as well as maximize your tax advantage. Make giving a priority this year by letting Novus Society at Donors Trust help you level up your charitable goals. Go to novussociety.org slash federalist. That's novussociety.org slash federalist to see how Novus Society can help you grow your impact as a young philanthropist. So how much do you have so far versus what you want to do? So we have spent total uh, filming with Tom. We spent about two weeks in country in Iraq and Syria. Okay. Uh, I made another trip back to Iraq and Syria and filmed about two more weeks of footage. Um, and so, you know, and that was a big, that was a $200,000 bet sure, yeah. uh, to make. And so we think with the, the legwork that we've done over the last 12 months, we can keep the episode cost to about half a million. Okay. Half of what it would be on Netflix. Um, but again, and you wrote a great piece about this a year ago, Hollywood's relationship with China, mm -hmm. right? Hollywood is not going to back this project because they have this financial interest in a lot of these countries. Oh, yeah. Oh, the Middle East. Yeah. The so Middle it's, East, China, it's twofold, and India. right? And, and, and this is mad. And I've talked about this a lot without the recorder running. So we've gone to entities and said, how about supporting this project? And they've said, well... We promise not to talk bad about China. And I'm like, that's like doing a doc about the Beatles and not mentioning John, yeah. you know, or you can't do a human rights doc series. Yeah. And not, but that's what they ask. And or we go to people and they say, oh, we love it. But we want you to just talk about Christians. I am a Christian. Yeah. But in my Bible, yeah. it that, says that we help everyone, even people we don't like. That's what the Good Samaritan's all about. Right. That was something that was actually, frankly, sort of depressing about this. Right. To go to, you know, Christian donors or Christian groups. And to have them say, great project, right? We've been looking for something like this for a while. 
Um, yeah, we're only interested in, in Christian persecution. Mm-hmm. Well, then it's like, guys, you're you're limiting your audience, right? The only people who are going to watch it are Christians. You're not changing hearts and minds. People sort of know that it's a problem. And so we thought one of the th- the great things about this project is we're going to you know talk about the atrocities going on around the world, right, um, without fear or favor, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really important. But this is not, not a good funding formula, though. No, it's not. No. <laughs> so we but we thought, look, we we have great material. We have a great trailer. Um, let's launch this on Indiegogo and mm-hmm. see how it performs. Right. There's a scripted series about Jesus's disciples called The Chosen. Yes. Yep. We've most, interviewed Dallas. Yeah. Yeah. So most successful crowdfunded media project of all time. I We just need like a fraction of what right. Dallas has been able to yeah. do for that series to get this project done. But we're, we're driving their Google search results because I'm like, who did this? This is awesome. <laughs> okay, so that's actually, that's really interesting because this is a story I wrote a couple of years ago um, right in the early days of the pandemic about The Chosen and about their sort of sponsor an episode business model and, and how it could be the future for Christian content creators and their, their one app model and all of that stuff. Um, what, so, so you see that as a model for you, well, you're yeah, doing. I think it's a model. I I think that there is, again, a large universe of people in this country who feel that traditional distributors, content distributors, you know, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu and others, um, you know, are just not producing content that that resonates with them. Right? And they've sold their soul. Right. Mm-hmm. If you won't do a piece because of China might not like it, then you are ostensibly owned by China. Were they just worried about China or were they worried also that was about the, Qatar and is China was oh, the one that we Saudi heard. Arabia, yeah. right? There again, after the the journalist was killed, Hollywood is like, well, we're not going to do anything with Saudi Arabia. That changed the equation. What are they doing now? They're taking money from Saudi Arabia. Of course. Yeah. So again, I mean, this is just the state of the world that we live in. That if we're going to make this project and it's going to be successful, it's going to be individual people around the country who hear about it, watch the trailer, and say. Wow, that looks amazing. I would watch that series. You know, here's 25 bucks. The other so bet- how do you raise $3 million? Somebody says, how do you raise $3 million? I said, if, if, if 1% of America gives $1, we're at $3.3 million. Yeah. I mean, this is, I mean. So where can people donate right now? So the Indiegogo uh, goes live on Wednesday. Right. Um, on the 8th. And then. Wednesday, uh, December 8th. Wednesday, December 8th. And it's exileseries.com. Exileseries.com. Watch the trailer. You see the full write-up. There's a bunch of great perks. You can win Tom's body armor. Um, it smells bad. But yeah, yeah, we have no idea the condition of it. Um, and so that's the thing. If we can get this project funded um, in 22, we're going to be going to a bunch of really dangerous countries uh, to make this series. Some of the countries that we're going to, we actually can't fly to directly. So we have to go to neighboring countries. And then we have people who are going to sneak us in. Um, but again, that's some of the groundwork that we've been doing. Over the last 12 months. So you envision this um, as a multi-episode, obviously, documentary series that could basically um, go on indefinitely. Uh, tragically, we could do this forever. Right. Right. But here's the thing, right? I mean, talking to Matt, I've said this, he's heard all this a thousand times. What's more important than this? What's more important than I thought maybe God has me as a cautionary tale that I can be the, the, the former politician who's honest enough to talk about his substance abuse problem. Maybe that's a high calling. I don't like it. I'd rather a different one. There's nothing more important I could be doing than helping other human beings. Does it make it harder to deal with the temptations of alcohol or easier? I'm telling you right now, uh, and I'll say this on MSNBC, Fox News, The Federalist, God has day one day at a time mm. alleviated that burden. Mm. 
And, and when I feel, and I'm not kidding you, right? I could sit here and cry. When I say, God, help me with this, you know, it doesn't, I don't get the help I want, how I want, when I want, but he always helps. Mm. And I'll tell you, we wanted to do this. We wanted to launch April of 2020, right? COVID, it's all gone to heck. Great time to do an international project, by the way, April of 2020. Right. I mean, (laughs) and so I'm praying going, what do you want, Lord? And and as soon as we realized we couldn't do this because of travel restrictions and then there's no oxygen in in the media room, I'm like, where am I supposed to be? And I get this contract job that was really what I needed at the time. And then that went away a couple months ago. And Matt called me up the same day and said, hey, you want to dust this thing off and roll it back out? I think it's important. Mm-hmm. And I went, I, I'm, I look at the heavens and I'm like, okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was, and a lot of it was Afghanistan, right? I mean, mm-hmm. people, I think that that has really changed the calculus on the political right. you know, stage and people saw you know, what's going on in Afghanistan now under the hands of the Taliban, the fact that we just gave the country back over to them. Um, and so, and, and again, but the problem is that so many of these stories, it's gotten worse over the last 18 months because of the pandemic. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's 13 Christians killed for their faith every day that we know about. Um, it's just Christians, like you said, and those are just Christians, right? Um, and so that's our goal. You know, hopefully people will share the trailer. I think they'll like it. I think that, um, Tom is an, is an interesting character. I had a, a call with, um, studio execs at NBC about a different project. And I happened to share with them the trailer for this. And they were like, wow, that guy's uh, really interesting. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and that's what I, you know, I, I wanted people to be able to connect with Tom and I think they will. Um, so we'll see, we'll see what, uh, what the appetite people have for this is. And the other interesting thing about the chosen model, now that you mention it is I started talking to them in February of 2020. So right as the pandemic was really starting to grip parts of China and they were telling me they had views of people in China from people in China It sort of allowed them to circumvent the mainstream streamers, for instance, like Netflix, that it isn't in China. Um, and they had people watching in the Middle East, um, really all over the world. So hopefully with a project like yours, you could potentially reach people in areas where they're actually uh, affected. That's the great thing about Indiegogo, too. Out of all of the crowdfunding platforms, it gives you um, access to a global audience, right? Yeah. They, they allow people from over 120 countries to be able to, you know, donate, um, where a lot of the other ones are more limited. So we think that that's, you know, you know we could see success on that front. We can have people in Europe. We can have people in these persecuted countries, Um who want us to tell their story. It's fantastic. Matt, how did you get into documentary filmmaking? Oh, man, that's a story. Uh, totally by accident. <laughs> I, uh, I used to work in radio. Um, I worked with uh, late great Doc Thompson, who was at The Blaze for a long time, who was my mentor. Um, grew up in Richmond, so I was in Virginia politics for a long time. Worked on Dave Bratt's primary campaign against Eric Cantor back in the 2014. Ins- the insurgent <laughs> campaign, yes. yeah. Yeah, the campaign that really kicked off, you know, incumbents being concerned about primary challengers. Um, was in D.C. for a couple of years running a little one-man consulting firm, and there was a disconnect between what I heard from friends who worked on the Hill, members I knew on the Hill, lobbyists that I knew, and what I was seeing on cable news. Uh, about the dysfunction going on within Congress Mm. Um, and really just turned off by, frankly, a lot of the Republicans campaigning for the repeal of Obamacare for years, right, and raising huge amounts of money, and then they get power and they couldn't do anything that was promised for years. So anyways, I wanted to show, like, why is Congress so dysfunctional? 
Uh, and that led to The Swamp as a Facebook series, which performed really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, yeah, we put a great team together and, and HBO greenlit it as, as a feature documentary. So there's a couple of things there. That I, I, I think I upset a lot of people when I was in Washington because I carried the discharge petition for the Obamacare repeal that had been voted for by all the Republicans right. when Obama was still in the of White course. House and the Democrats controlled one of the chambers. And so the discharge petition would have allowed it to come to a vote. And all the leadership who had voted for it told everybody, don't you sign Garrett's bill to get this a vote. And so I went in and said, and I'm a freshman, I'm a first-term guy. And I'm like, hey, guys, you all voted for this when there was no chance it could ever pass. Dozens of times. Why why not now? And they're like, shut up. You don't understand how we do this. Yeah. And I'm like, you don't know who you're talking to. I ain't going to shut up. And um, so when, when a fallacious series of allegations was rolled out against me, I can walk that dog backwards for you, but you don't want me to. But yeah, no, it, it's I, I, so I'm going to get committee assignments, and 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 I go tell uh, the chairman of the ag committee I want to be on the ag committee because it's the economic driver in my district. And he goes, we had to pass a farm bill, and I said, well, let me take a look at it. I'll try to get to yes. And he goes, we hadn't written it yet. And I said, are you telling me I got to agree to vote for a bill that doesn't exist to be on your committee? And he's like, yeah. Let alone the farm bill, <laughs> right? The, and, the notoriously porked up farm. So bill. so guess who was never on the ag committee, right? Because yeah. I'm like, I'm gonna make you that promise, and and. Uh, yeah, it's. Um, I was told in the DC's, beginning that like, DC's broken. Well, and that's how people end up getting broken by DC. Yeah, I was told in the beginning by a lot of people that uh, no one in Hollywood was going to buy the swamp, mm-hmm. right? And I was like, this is a really good product. Like, we're getting very quickly a lot of stories and a level of candidness that I had never heard before. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, AT and T owns HBO, and there's a well, whole corporate. Yeah, and they were, you know, we again, we're like we went to pitch the swamp, and we, you know, I said, hey, look, we have this unprecedented access to Congress. We're following four members of the House Freedom Caucus, and they like rolled their eyes in the meeting, right? <laughs> like, yeah, not these guys. Um, but then they watched the sizzle, and they were like. Wow. Okay, that's like not what I was expecting at all. Um, and so, again, I was told the swamp is never going to sell. We ended up getting it sold. And I think the same thing with this project. Uh, I think if we get this first season done, that this is going to get picked up somewhere. Yeah. Um, and so, again, I, you know, we were willing to take that risk. Tom's willing to take that uh, that risk, and uh, I think we're going to end up with with an incredible product. How big of a crew did you bring over to? We had uh, four plus four. Day, right? Yeah, four was, plus yeah. So that's pretty small, right? Yeah, yeah, it's skeleton crews. Yeah, because you're. I mean, again, when you're in these countries, you know, a couple of SUVs rolling through town, everyone starts talking. Yeah, of course. And so you want to be in the back of one Jeep. Now and, we had four film crew plus Matt, but we were we had some uh, security type assets that were sort of inherent. Yeah. Oh, of course. Bigger than the four, but that makes sense. Interesting. Well, one more plug for the website. What is it, Matt? Exileseries.com. Exileseries.com. Thank you both for your time today. Thanks so much Thank for having you. us. What a, what, a, what, a, what an opportunity. Thank you. Of course. We could keep going on this for hours. Such a fascinating topic and a fascinating project. Exileseries.com. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. You've been listening to another edition of The Federalist Radio Hour. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray.